0: What is the situation in regard to military security of the Pacific area, and what is our policy in regard to it? In the first place, the defeat and disarmament of Japan has placed upon the United States the necessity of assuming the military defense of Japan so long that it is required, both in the interest of our security and in the interest of the security of the entire Pacific area, and in all honor in the interest of the Japanese security. We have American and there are Australia troops in Japan. I am not in a position to speak on for the Australians, but I can assure you that there is not intention of any sort of abandoning or weakening the defenses of Japan and what, whatever arguments are to be made, either through permanent settlement or otherwise, that defense must and shall be maintained. The defense perimeter run, runs along the Aleutians to Japan then goes to the Ryukus where we hold important defense positions in the Ryuku Islands and those will continue to hold. In the interest of the population of the Ryukyu Islands we will at an appropriate time offer to hold these islands under a trusteeship of the United Nations but they are essential parts of the, the defense perimeter of the Pacific and that They must and will be held. The defense perimeter runs from the Ryukus to the Philippine Islands. Our relations, our defensive relations with the Philippines are contained in agreements between us. Those agreements are being loyally carried out and will be loyally carried out. Both peoples have learned by bitter experience that the vital connections between our mutual defense requirements, we are in no doubt about that. And it is hardly necessary for me to say an attack on the Philippines could not and would not be tolerated by the United States. But I hasten to add that no one perceives eminence of that attack, so far as military security of other areas of the Pacific is concerned. It must be clear that no person can guarantee these areas against military attack But it must also be clear that such guarantee is hardly sensible or necessary within the realm of practical relationship. Such an attack occur. One hesitates to say where such an armed attack could come from. The initial reliance must be on the people attacked to resist it and then upon the commitments of the entire civilized world under the Charter of the United Nations, which so far has not proved a weak read to lean on by any people who are determined to protect their independence against outside aggression. But it is a mistake, I think, in considering the Pacific and Far Eastern problems to become obsessed with military considerations. Important as they are, there are other problems that press, and these other problems are not capable of solution through military means. These other problems arise out of susceptibility of many areas and many countries in the Pacific area, a subversion and penetration that cannot be stopped by military means. The susceptibility and penetration arises because in many areas there are new governments which have little experience in governmental administration and have not become firmly established or perhaps are firmly accepted in their countries. They grow, in part, from very serious economic problems. In part, these susceptibility and penetration comes from great social upheaval and about which I have been speaking. So after this survey, what we conclude, I believe, is that there is a new day which has dawned in Asia. It is a day in which the Asian peoples are on their own and know it and intend it to continue on their own. It is a day in which the old relationships between East and West are gone. A relationship in which their worst exploitations and which their best were paternalism. The relationship is over. And the relationship of East and West must now be in the Far East one in mutual respect and mutual helpfulness. We are their friends. Others are their friends. We and those others are willing to help. And we can help only where we are wanted and only where the conditions of help are really sensible and possible. So in what we can see is that... This new day in Asia, this new day which is dawning, may go on to a glorious noon or it may darken and it may drizzle out. But that decision lies within the countries of Asia and within the power of Asian people and is not a decision in which a friend or even an enemy from the outside can decide for them. That was Secretary of State Dean Acheson's speech to the National Press Club on January 12,
1: 1950. Hello and welcome back to the Cleocast. I'm RC. And I'm Matt. And we're going to continue with part two of the Korean War. We're going to do it a bit different this time. We're just going to kind of go until a natural stopping point. So this might be a bit longer than you are used to, but it'll be a lot better, we hope. So with that, we're going to get right into it.
0: So that speech really kind of outlines the idea of uh, post-World War II United States and some policies that n- the new liberal idea that stands. Dean Acheson is pointing at the self-determination of Asian countries, but also outline that there is still U.S. interest and the United States is there to protect, kind of like a Big Brother setup, but it's allowing these countries to have more independence and have more self-determination of these nations, uh, especially in Asia. The issue that needs to be really looked at is the United States was really demobilizing post-World War II. They cut down their military drastically. And Truman's main policy is we don't really need this right now. And... We don't need to spend all of this money on the military, because what if we're going to do anything, it's going to be mainly a war with the Soviets, and a war with the Soviets is an absolute disaster, uh, but any amount of need for any natural military forces to do any small wars is not really necessary, so the United States is gutting their military, and the United Nations, was created in 1947, is standing as a new institution in which the world can then govern and work out their problems, like Dean Atchison pointed out in that speech that we read. And we, as a country, as the United States as a country, is going to uh, represent the countries that we have assumed that we are in uh, charge and defense of, but we're going to allow self-determination. The issue with that speech is... A place was left out that is korea so the united states doesn't have an interest in the defense of korea The united states has the defense of the interest of the Ryukyu islands the united states is the defense uh, in mind of the philippines and has the defense of japan in mind they have all of those countries in mind in defending them from any situation that could be construed as uh you know, a war or an invasion or any kind of uh, aggressive military action. What is left out is Korea. So if you are a lifelong revolutionary who also fought against the Japanese and have a lot of military experience, like a person named Kim Il-sung, you see an opportunity. Well, they're not Really going to defend the Republic of Korea in South, which is South Korea. The official name of South Korea is Republic of Korea. By the way, they not going to, they're not going to defend it. They're going to basically let it be. And uh, Dean Atchison said that we're here for the determination of our new nations. We hold this determination in our hands. So why don't I, as an independent part of Asia? basically take full control of my country and you can see the logic here he's basically doing what he was left out of dean atchison's little like spy zone and he's doing what dean atchison said he wants to have happen in asia so kim il-sung sees the opportunity So, so far, Kim's opportunities in the background have been snuffed. Uh, Not even a year earlier, because this is only January of 1950, he was told "niet" by Joseph Stalin in invading and taking over the entire peninsula of Korea. Basically, the Soviets wanted Kim Il-sung to maintain a guerrilla war, just like he did against the Japanese, but against the new government in South Korea, because he is in their eyes and Kim Il-sung's eyes, the legitimate government of the Korean Peninsula. So he maintains the guerrilla war, but is completely unhappy with Joseph Stalin, giving the flat no, uh, and continues to do these plans. But also in 1949, a large Asian communist power comes into the fray with Mao Zedong and the Chinese Communist Party winning the civil war over Chiang Kai-shek. They are now China and even though the UN wouldn't recognize that, but we're going to hold on to that thought, put a pin in that. Uh, So, Kim Il-sung goes to Mao to see if he could get military support. Mao is a bit shaky in late 1949 to early 1950 on if South Korea could win, and the issue that Kim Il-sung had with both Stalin and Mao is he couldn't give a definitive actual, yes, we can wholly and soundly beat them. We can wholly and soundly beat the Koreans. But Kim Il sung was aggressively into the belief that the United States would not get involved. Uh, And the Soviets were fearing the United States' involvement in the war, but Kim Il sung was adamant that the United States would not get involved in the war, and also that he could, if people backed him, could win the war. But that's the issue is they have to back him and they have to make sure the United States stays out of it. But so none of the two premier communist powers going on really wanted to back uh, the Koreans in this invasion. But Kim Il-sung was adamant that he could do it with support. What he did get, though, is he got some tacit uh, economic support from the Soviets, and he got uh, some military advisors from the Soviet Union to come and inspect the military and help train. Uh, He also got a bunch of equipment from both the Soviets and the Chinese. But neither one of them really wanted to be involved in a war with the United States, obviously, and they knew that the Republic of Korea, which was in the South, had implicit American support. That fell by the wayside, really, when Dean Acheson says something like that about the defensive perimeter and leaves Korea basically out to dry, so Kim is ready and he's ready to prepare for war. That is January 12th, 1950. This is where I also point out that the United States really had not given Sigmund Rhee or the Republic of Korea any major military support, so... They know through intelligence, uh, both uh, Republic of Korea and American intelligence was looking at the Soviets and maybe saw an intention of Stalin getting involved. So, uh, and they thought the order for Stalin to get involved came through around early January, but before Dean Acheson's speech. Now, the Soviet intelligence was looking and knew that the Republic of Korea and also Chinese intelligence was also looking as well that the Republic of Korea didn't have the equipment to really maintain a large-scale war. They only had small arms. They didn't really have a lot of artillery pieces or tanks. They lacked tanks completely. Now, what the Soviets were giving North Korea were so many T-34s. So many T-34s, and they also had large industrial support from the Soviet Union in developing in a, it wasn't a five-year plan, it was a two-year plan to really reindustrialize and build up the North. The North was already the larger industrial power out of the two split Korea, uh, but with Soviet planning and Soviet, well, rubles going in to help build uh, the Korea up, they had the infrastructure, they had the equipment and they were ready to go. But this took preparation and Kim who was adamant that he could do it with support was still looking for the support.
1: From January to February of 1950, the Soviets and the Chinese met in a series of meetings to hammer out a new version of their 1945 friendship agreement. A lot had changed since the original agreement, see. The Chinese had taken the complete mainland, and the Soviets were still occupying Manchuria, and the war had been over for five years. Over the course of about a month, they hammered out a bunch of issues. They disagreed in a lot of places. The Soviets agreed to phase out their military occupation of Manchuria in about five to ten years. But they did give some concessions to the Chinese communists. One point was they would defend China against Japan and its allies. A second point is Mongolia would remain independent A third point would be $300 in credits in U.S. dollars. A fourth point would be a series of aviation trade agreements to be agreed upon later. Uh, The status of Xinjiang and the present Soviet forces in Manchuria were the major standout issues, but the Chinese communists under Mao were able to walk away from that conference happy that they had gotten what concessions they had and excited to continue to work in the future to improve things. This treaty was formally signed on February 14th of 1950. So while the North Koreans are trying to get aid from the Soviets, the Soviets are talking to the Chinese communists and, you know, giving them a bunch of concessions and stuff. And this is just about a month after the Dean Acheson speech we've been referencing. So while the American policy has been cutting out the Asian area, cutting out Korea, just kind of focusing on what they already have, the Soviets are all in. You know, They're signing a new friendship agreement with the Chinese communists who have Korea right on their border. Now, this January 12th Dean Acheson speech that we're kind of using in a lot of places, because you could argue it's an important speech, did not really make the South Korean, the Republic of Korean government, very happy. You see, the Americans still just viewed the Republic of Korea as effectively an experiment in nation-building, because they had been occupied for so long, and unlike the Japanese and the Philippines that the Americans had in their possession, the Republic of Korea was almost having to build a government from the ground up without any former, you know, modern Western framework to work around. Rhee was not particularly happy about his country being just an experiment in American nation building, and he voiced this displeasure to the American ambassador, and his ambassador... uh, John Chang talked with Assistant Secretary Rusk of the Americans and about increasing aid to the Republic of Korea, you see, because Rhee was saying that, hey, look, in concession for you cutting us out of your supposed defense perimeter in Asia, at the very least, could you give us more weapons, you know, tanks an Air Force and Navy to help defend ourselves in case there's ever an invasion if you're not going to? To which the American Joint Chiefs of Staff and the department heads of the Navy and Air Force said, absolutely not. You get defensive arms only. We don't want the potential for you to invade the North. The South has to be a defensive army only. In fact, what aid they did get remained entirely conditional, apparently, according to the American ambassador. He said that in order for this aid to continue coming in, you have to guarantee us that you will get your defense spending in hand, the Republic of Korea. You'll curb your inflation rates in your country You'll do a land reform, you know, you have to get all the uh, Japanese-held land that had been retaken by the Korean government. You have to figure out what you're going to do with that, because obviously the Japanese had been kicked out, the occupiers had been kicked out. They have to get a rice distribution plan in order to, in order to figure out how to actually get the logistics of that going. And the most important thing, the 1950 election that's happening in May has to go off completely without a hitch. The United Nations Commission on Korea was going to monitor the election and make sure that it was honest and fair. And that was absolutely integral to American aid there. They were saying, hey, look, if this election goes awry, we're not going to be funding a military dictatorship. We're going to be funding a democracy. So make sure you stay that way. Because in fairness, Rhee was the first leader of a nation that didn't really have any democratic uh, history to it. So it was a bit more, you know, nations sometimes can get grabbed by guys who are singularly in power. And it was a bit enticing for Ri because he was basically the founding father of this new Democratic Republic of Korea. Now, we're talking about January to about February right now. And we had it sounds almost peaceful, but there's been border conflicts going on between the North and South Koreans. The border has been hot it hasn't been war hot, but, you know, there's been random shooting there, random violence here. It's, it's a U.N.-established border, but there's no real, you know, almost Big Brother-style guy making sure the North and the South Koreans are not fighting. Now, Kim was using this as a show of his commitment to the region. He was using this to show the Soviets, hey, look, see, we're fighting in this area. We're able to fight the South Koreans. This is what's going on. But the South turned to the Americans and were like, hey, this is why we need more military assistance. You know, you're giving us these small arms, but they're attacking us. We need something to make them stop. You know, maybe if we had hundreds of Shermans, they wouldn't attack us because right now they've got T-34s and we don't have anything equivalent and we don't have an Air Force. To put in Ree's kind of mindset into perspective during this time, in 1949, in September, he wrote to an American public affairs advisor, his American public affairs advisor, Professor Robert T. Oliver, a letter talking about how unless he got larger sums of aid and more support from the Americans, the communists in the north who are getting tons of aid from the Soviets and tons of support were going to win. The new nations cannot keep fighting, he wrote, and Korea was at the center of this losing battle. In this same letter, he also continued, saying, The Republic of Korea needs more arms, not more soldiers. The Republic of Korea forces could join our loyal communist army in the north to clean up the rest of them in Pyongyang and drive out the Soviet puppet clique of Kim Il Sung, his gangsters, terrorists, assassins, and robbers, and most North Koreans would welcome liberation, but without American assistance, South Korea would be the victim, not the liberator. To put it plainly, we believe that unless the Americans actually anteed up and supported him more than they already were, they were doomed. It was only a matter of when, not if. In January 13th of 1950, the Soviet Union's ambassador to the United Nations Security Council walked out in protest of the Republic of China having the United Nations seat instead of communist China. You see, Taiwan, the Republic of China, retained the seat it had had once the United Nations had formed, despite losing control of the mainland. And the Soviets, in part helping out their Sino-Soviet friendship treaty, were trying to protest this fact and wanted the communists to have the seat. This will be very important later. Keep that in mind.
0: Stalin began to come around to the idea of uh, invading Korea, and so was Mao. With uh, this... Growing interest in uh, the, you know, North Korea invading the South, uh, the Korean People's Army uh, increased in size from ninety to one hundred eighty. That is a double. They went from a simple light infantry force uh, of just you know dudes with guns to having uh, tanks up the wazoo. They also had uh, a air force that. If, if war started out the south koreans would be uh in a bad shape uh the south koreans didn't have any air force whatsoever the north koreans would have the largest and most comparable uh competitive air force out in the field this is uh a complete danger to the south koreans uh and the north koreans everything's looking up uh they have the equipment they have the influence and they have the uh financial ability to maintain this large conflict, uh, and they're preparing for it. The Soviets also uh, gave a lot of equipment, but were basically uh, pulling out a lot of their military advisors and a lot of influence that they had in the army and going towards more of a material support than an actual personnel support. Uh, look in this because Stalin was coming around to the idea of this war but he definitely did not want to be in a shooting war with the United States and Mao uh, although giving some material support was in uh, frankly just won a civil war and there's better resources uh, for his uh, country to focus on internally than it is to help an external power fight so but Kim Il Sung's adamant and war is approaching, and honestly, when the May election comes around in 1950, Kim Il-sung has some objections on that being a free and fair election, done properly, and uh, is a bit upset the United, States, the United Nations is recognizing the election of Sigmund Rhee again. Now, uh, that is just enough for Kim Il-sung. This is a problem. Sigmund Rhee has been uh, begging, obviously, from what we explained earlier, for uh, more assistance from the United States. The United States is basically stiffing them. And the issue is, is uh, the South Korean intelligence in May was looking at what was forming at their border. The Korean People's Army had 173 tanks, 30 armored cars, 609 artillery pieces, 1,162 medium and heavy mortars, 627 anti-tank guns, almost 10,000 machine guns. Its Air Force, like I was explaining earlier, uh, actually had 195 aircraft, and its Navy had 32 patrol boats. Along with 180,000 men, just in the KPA how is how is Korea going to the South Korean government's going to stand up to this and that was what the argument that someone was making to the general that was in charge in Korea his name was Brigadier General William L. Roberts but William L. Roberts peaced out he was going back to California and was getting ready to retire now uh, that is an issue when Sigmarine has nothing else to really talk to and uh He's getting kind of, you know, uh, the cold shoulder from the United States government, and it is claimed by a uh, uh, the former Army Chief of Staff, uh, J. Lawton Collins, that Roberts called the Korean Army in South Korea the best Dong shooting army outside the United States, and that this army could stop the North Koreans. Th- that's not true. Uh, he didn't even bother to check. And uh no one really uh, the United States was aware that this would go badly, but they didn't think it would go as badly as it does. But we're now sniffing into June, and a thing is about to happen that is drastic and will change our understanding and would change the Korean Peninsula up until today.
1: June is the start of the monsoon season in Korea. It's also around the harvest time. So on June 24th, the Republic of Korean Army gives 15-day leave to all soldiers from farming communities to go help with the harvest because, you know, they're trying to get the rice harvest under control. The Border Patrol Force on the 38th parallel is about 38,000 men on paper. About two-thirds of those men go home to go help with the harvest. Also around this time, June 24th, June 25th, a new officer's corps is opened in Seoul. So a lot of the officers go to celebrate the opening, you know, partying, kind of hanging out, fraternizing. On the north side of the border, the North Koreans have amassed at least 90,000 men in go position with about 150 T-34 tanks. That same Brigadier General, William L. Roberts, that we mentioned earlier believed that tank warfare was impossible in the country along the 30th parallel due to the mountainous terrain and also the abundance of wet rice paddies but he had gone home to retire uh June 25th so he wasn't really here anymore the north koreans did not draw the same conclusion about the terrain jin hak kim who was a lieutenant in the Republic of Korean 1st Division, who was stationed in the western city of Kaesong, said, quote, The war began with a sudden eruption of artillery fire. A barrage laid onto our lines all along our sector of the frontier. One minute there was rain and silence. The next, a hellish din and explosions all around us. I was sleeping in a dugout built into the side of a hill and with sandbags on top. The impact of the first rounds knocked me off my cot and sand and dirt poured into the dugout. I managed to pull on my clothes and run outside. One of my sergeants was near the door, groaning and holding his shoulder. I reached down to move him out of the way. His arm fell off. It had been severed near the shoulder. He groaned again and was dead." The only American advisor on the 38th Parallel on June 27th was Captain Joseph R. Derrigo, who was attached to the Republic of Korea 12th Regiment, who were just north of Kaesong. He awoke around 5 o'clock to the sound of artillery fire, and then soon, small-arms fire was hitting near him. He jumped into his jeep and drove into Kaesong proper to figure out what was happening. In the center of Kaesong... He had to stop because there was a line of North Korean troops who began firing on him. You see, they had rebuilt train lines during the night and were simply driving trains into the city on the train lines that had been destroyed during the disarmament after the Second World War. These train lines were now moving North Korean troops into South Korea. Joseph Arderigo soon left at a very rapid pace. See, there had been enough small fights and whatnot happening in the past few months to the past couple of years, as we mentioned previously, that a lot of people along the border where there wasn't actually any fighting happening on June 27th didn't believe it. See, the boy had cried wolf one too many times, and they figured, well, you know, every tiny little border conflict isn't the North's jump in the border, so this probably isn't it either. Jack James was the United Press correspondent in Seoul. He had partied late the night before, but awoke to go into work and write a short little mailer to send out to the American, you know, attachments of his United Press Corporation to, you know, put out in print the next day. He was going to write, quote, Despite a quickened propaganda campaign by North Koreans and their continual threats for that zero hour would be on such and such a date, the best opinion did not believe there would be any invasion before at least the fall, end quote. He figured he'd just run into Seoul, write a quick story, and then go out about his day. Jack James was one of those individuals who had heard Wolf cried too many times and didn't believe any reports at this point that the North was invading, because they had invaded multiple times previously, which all ended up being false. As he made his way into the United Press office, he met up with an intelligence officer who was working in there too. This is what he had to say, Jack James saying, quote, He thought I was in on the story. What do you hear from the border, he asked me. Well, not very much yet. What do you hear, I said. Well, hell, they're supposed to have crossed everywhere except in the 8th Division area, he told me. Well, that's more than I've heard, I said, and I went into the press room to start phoning, end quote. James had discovered the war was on by this intelligence officer, and he did his best to start uncovering the story and what exactly was happening. He spent apparently 90 minutes telephoning sources all around Korea. He roused a bunch of embassy officers. He was just trying to figure out what the hell was going on because there were no concrete reports at this point. Everything was just fraggled, you know? There, There were almost no South Korean forces in position at this point, and all reports were just scattered and not very in line. In fact, most of the reports he did get were police reports, which James himself said they're not very reliable and most of them are usually exaggerated, so he had to discount a lot of those. He made his way to the embassy where he had a lot of friends. You know, he was an American in Seoul, so he tended to know a lot of the other Americans, especially the bigger officers that were around Seoul. So he got to sit in on a meeting between Harold Noble, who was the first embassy secretary, who said that he considered him an honest and conscientious reporter, you know, of course. Uh, So James was able to get the first report about the war from the embassy staff, the American embassy, and he wrote it up and filed it under an urgent cable, which meant that they would have to pay more. That's how important this was. And it said, fragmentary reports, X-38th parallel, indicated North Koreans launched Sunday morning attacks generally along entire border. Power reports at zero nine thirty local time indicated Kaesong, 40 miles northwest Seoul, and headquarters of Korean Army's 1st Division fell, 9 a.m., stopped. Enemy forces reported 3 to 4 kilometers south of border on Onjin Peninsula. Stop. Tanks supposed brought into use crunching 50 miles northeast Seoul. Stop. Landing XC also reported from 20 small boats belong Kaeyong on eastern coast where reportedly offcut highway Indem. Note should stress this still fragmentary and picture vague Stit James. It was received almost instantaneously at the United Press office in San Francisco. It was urgent, and, you know, they want to get their news out quickly. This was the first report the United States government had of the war. The press was able to move faster than military bureaucracy, and it didn't help that Truman had left this same day before to go back to Kansas City for vacation. So around 3 o'clock in the afternoon... He was on a plane heading to Kansas City for a vacation in Independence. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and everyone was still frantically trying to figure out exactly what to tell Truman. Is this actually an invasion? Is this important enough to bring him back from vacation? I mean, you know, the man's the president. He doesn't get that much free time. Do we bother him? This all is somewhat confusing as well because Korea and America are in different time zones, so the we'll just kind of have to keep that in mind when I give these times, but the Pentagon received news of the invasion around 11.30 p.m. America time. And that's when they started work trying to verify the validity of the reports. As I said, it was just one journalist who had managed to send the message out that quickly, so the Joint Chiefs just kind of had to figure out okay, is this guy legit? Is this just sensationalism? Like, are we going to dictate foreign policy on this one journalistic output? Well, eventually, on that evening of Saturday, President Truman got the phone call from Dean Acheson. He said, quote, Mr. President, I have very serious news. The North Koreans have invaded South Korea. Now, Truman wanted to go back to Washington, and this is an obvious uh, reaction. But Dean Acheson told them, just wait. We don't know what's going on. The North Koreans had attacked before but just in smaller scales. We don't know the size of this. You know, don't cancel your vacations. And also, you're flying a propeller plane across the continent at the middle of the night. We don't want anything to happen to you, you know. It's dark. This could be dangerous, especially for nothing. So just wait. Just wait. But Dean Atchison did say, hey, look, if I get your approval, we can, you know, get a... United Nations Security Council meeting on this as soon as possible, you know, you don't have to head back yet, but we can start working on this now and then if it's nothing it's nothing, but if it's something we already have the work done, and Truman approved this so John Hickerson, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for International Organization Affairs, began making calls to all the other members of the United Nations Security Council, to their ambassadors in New York, to get them to come for a meeting you know, there's something happening in Korea and we probably need to talk about it now of course as we mentioned earlier the soviets supported this invasion at least somewhat they weren't doing it militarily but now there's united nations security counts being met and who had walked out in january well the soviets so who didn't get a phone call from john d hickerson well the soviets they were protesting it so they wouldn't be invited you know they don't want to be there anyways so by sunday morning so it's been about 24 hours They managed to, around 2.30 a.m., Hickerson managed to get a formal outline of what the United Nations Security Meeting was going to be about. And it said, The American ambassador to the Republic of Korea has informed the Department of State that the North Korean forces invaded the territory of the Republic of Korea at several points in the early morning hours of June 25th, Korean time. Pyongyang Radio, under the control of the North Korean regime, it is reported, has broadcast a declaration of war against the Republic of Korea, effective 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, June 24th. An attack of the forces of the North Korean regime, under the current circumstances referred to above, constitutes a breach of the peace and an act of aggression. Upon the request of my government, the United States, I ask that you call an immediate meeting of the United Nations Security Council.
0: So... This United Nations Security Council meeting basically makes any involvement on the South Korean side, the United Nations being involved. So when y- the American troops go in, they aren't actually American troops, even though they are their Americans and whatnot. The these are unite this the United Nations intervention to basically push the Koreans back, the South or North Koreans back and hold South Korea and hold the border at the 38th parallel. That's the main strategic operation here, and it's going to. There's going to be other countries that come along, but the main forces involved is uh, the Rock forces, ROK forces, and American forces who do this fighting. But the issue is, by the time that American forces could get there, there might not be a South Korea to defend. The North Koreans are blazing down, and Rock forces are uh, routing like crazy. They keep on having to fall back after fall back after fall back, and if not uh, die or die fighting, uh, surrender to the North Koreans, and it's, it's bad. Uh, it is an absolute hemorrhage. And by uh, day three, which in order to get an army to mobilize, especially from the troops uh, that were going to be coming from the United Nations, which were mainly going to be American troops from Japan, uh, they need days to get moving and get everything uh, going because it takes a lot to move hundreds of thousands of men. So, by uh, three days, uh, basically, the South Koreans have lost the majority of their part of the country. And the North Koreans are making absolutely amazing progress. And this is where I need to point out that uh, the American troops that are going to come to respond to this are going to be coming from Japan. The issue is, is that these guys have basically been an occupying army who have been able to have like a nice Japanese vacation. Even though they're in the army or the Marine Corps or the Navy, they don't really do a lot of actual intense training or prepare to go to war. They are a occupying force there to keep the peace and keep uh, something from happening because Japan is being reshaped and is in the middle of being reshaped because this is uh, not even, uh, well, this is five years post-World War II. There are people, everyone in Japan who is a conscious, is fully really aware of what Japan used to be and the war in general. So Japan is a very, very, very fresh country and these troops are being used as a you know, a force to basically maintain peace and uh, reshape Japan, not a force to go fight in a freezing peninsula in mountainous terrain. So, the training and all-around capability of these troops are so-so here at the beginning, but also it doesn't really matter because they aren't there yet, and it really looks like it's going to be an absolute wipe by the North Koreans. But, there is a little defensive perimeter being formed up around the port of Busan and everything is going to have a slight turn, but we're going to talk about that next time on the ClioCast for part three of the history of the Korean war. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Matt and I'm RC and we'll see you next week. Go ahead and subscribe uh, to our uh, ACAST. You can go ahead and follow us there. We have a little bit set up as a website. You can follow us on Twitter, at Clio History. You can also email us. You can find the email in ACAST. And I hope you've enjoyed. Thank you. Bye.